So, Bob, I have a lot of emails and questions on Facebook directed toward you, and oh. I thought that we would roll, roll through those. I, want, I, got a, I got 10 pages of questions and notes <laughs> that I want to finish in this episode, so we got to rapidly fire through these. What do you say? Let's fire through. We this, never do, but... <laughs> I know. We never do. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist a professor and a fast podcaster aspirationalist. Who are you, Berto? Or Berto, Bob. Yeah, uh, I'm Bob. I'm your friend from graduate school 100 years ago, a therapist in practice here in Seattle. And I was thinking on my drive into work today, I had never said how grateful I am to you for uh, letting me come on here and talk with you. I really like doing this. Well, I'm grateful to you too, Bob. Yeah, thanks. Uh, one Mostly, honestly, because it just gives me a chance to yeah. hang out with you yeah, me too. more often than we would have otherwise, right. I think. That's true. And the, the listeners love you. Oh, well, that's I nice. I mean, it's, it's unanimous. Hmm. Um, and I want to remind you and the listeners that 11 years ago when I set forth on this podcast, <laughs> I originally wanted it to be me and Bob. Yeah. Uh, Bob said absolutely not because he was shy. <laughs> and I just went to my next best friend, which was Umberto. But Umberto was like, a, you know, a distant second because he's not a clinician. And so I thought, well, I don't know, maybe he'll be like the funny guy on the podcast. And, you know, things worked out. But, yeah. but uh, clearly, if you would have joined me in the beginning, think of the mountains we could have climbed. could have climbed. <laughs> um, okay, first question from Top Fan Patrick on Facebook. He says... Hearing from Bob always means a lot to me. Oh. I feel like I can relate to Bob the most. Hmm. It's not a question. No. It's just a thing to say. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that makes sense given your ability to talk about your own experience uh-huh. attachment-wise, yeah, right. um, insecurity-wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's universal insecurity. <laughs> Indeed. So this is a really important point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so great to hear people talk about it. Like um, Conan O'Brien needs a friend podcast. Uh, he will sometimes get into how Conan himself and the guests, or what the fuck podcast with uh, Mark Marin, um, also another guy who likes to get into it with. And these are celebrities. These are guys yeah. at the top of their game. Yeah. Uh, who have achieved everything yeah. and um, you know they go to sleep at night like worrying about the stupid shit that they said <laughs> just like everyone else does. Like, Howard like, Stern is actually like that as well uh, yeah you know it's just it's nice to know that um, no matter how high you climb you're still just an insecure boob <laughs> um, Sarah on Facebook says I know you've covered it before but I find his knowledge on borderline and DBT fascinating oh Challenges of group therapy, Bob, is what she wants to know. What are the challenges of group therapy? Oh, good question. Now, when she says group therapy, I think she means DBT skills class. And I think group therapy in general. Okay. Know. I have very little experience doing group therapy. I haven't done that it's probably since school. At process group process therapy. Process group therapy, which, by the way, guys, I think is really, boy, good group therapy is really good. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. Famous patron Emily in Philadelphia does that kind of work. We've had her on the podcast before, uh, and she's talked about her own experience as a client and also as a clinician yeah. and how powerful it can be. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, what are the challenges of, of DBT class group uh, leading? Uh, striking a balance between acceptance of uh, a person where they are and a pull for change. That's always a moving target. And um, how to validate. Not going too fast. Yeah. Not like accusing them of uh, having feelings that are invalid or something. Oh, never that. Yeah, right. But, you know. But, right. As you challenge, like, so, you know, let's evaluate that feeling and that reaction. Right. Um, There's a risk. You're going to step on a landmine where the person's going to feel like you are basically saying their feelings are invalid. Uh That they're invalid. Yeah. And that's a very obviously trauma triggering uh, notion, given right. that they were rejected for everything growing up, yeah. um, including their feelings. Um, so that's what you're saying that balance of like uh-huh. meet them where they are and what's the next step forward, uh-huh. but not two steps forward. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But what about group dynamics? I mean, I'm sure you deal with that a lot. 
Well, you know, uh, we're set up so that uh, we minimize the impact of group dynamics. We have a specific rule that there will be no uh, judgment or criticism of one another in the class, that comments that clients or that students make to one another are supportive and helpful only when asked. And so my groups tend to be spontaneously supportive of one another. Um, and we have a specific rule that we will assume the best intent in each other. So there is no kind of challenging uh, crosstalk that would take place in a process group. Crosstalk is the wrong way to put it, but there's n- we, don't, we don't do that because it has the potential to undermine um, our main goal together, which is to learn and practice skills. And so... Um, we're not a process group, and I tell them that up front. And, and then I just put brackets around, um, well, it, I think I've gotten so good at it, it rarely happens. People, people actually like coming. Mm-hmm. So they don't get in scrapes with one another, and they often feel very safe and therefore very supportive and therefore, in many ways, unguarded. And so their defenses don't come up because, you know, they're among friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like a wonderful group to yeah. go to. yeah. I, you know, imagine that there are times when you're preparing for group mentally anyway. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, okay, I got to get my head in the game because uh-huh. to do individual therapy, it's often less of a emotional outlay, right? When you do groups or teaching, I mean, I, as yeah, a, right. maybe you're closer to a professor like me mm. in that I got to gear up my energy I know I'm going to deal with at least one or two students that have facial expressions that are uh, challenging to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, there's always that one student who just has like resting disapproval face, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, and I always point them out too. like I had, I had a student for a, a number of a uh, couple of years and she I would frequently be like. I don't know exactly how I'd phrase it, but I'd, you know, I said something like, oh, you know, resting disapproval face. What's going on there? Nice. Um, uh, which, you know, it's hard. And so I just imagine for you that as you're teaching the class, there's amount of energy you got to get up. There's, yeah. there's always like one or two students who are a little harder to connect with, oh, uh, yeah. a little bit more to, to manage. Um, is that a challenge? Yeah, it is. Um uh, being curriculum driven, um, there's less of that. I I stick. I teach a curriculum, so there's less focus on um, individual student experience and um, the ten. The way people generally talk about things is just in terms of skills. So I probably have a little bit of a, a structural advantage um, uh, in that. So we don't really get into too much. What is the experience? Though um, one of the things that I've learned. Uh, from experience and also just from watching you is humility. And I do indeed fuck up sometimes. And uh, the last time I fucked up, I got impatient with one of my students and I said something, you know, kind of shitty, really. Um, Judgmental, critical. And, you know, as soon as I do that, it doesn't register just with the one person. It registers with everybody. But for this person that I said it to, it took about 45 minutes for it actually to impact her. As soon as I said it, I'm like, oh, shit, I yeah. screwed up. Yeah. And so what I did is I, I it's something I've learned to do and I, I've gotten good at it and um, is absolutely necessary is I simply just publicly apologized to her. I said, you know what? That sucked. I shouldn't have said that to you. And I'm really sorry. And if you have feelings about this and you want to talk about it, we certainly can. Um, and she did. Uh, uh, but at the end of the class. And uh, she was really pissed off at me, and rightfully so. And so I just reiterated, yep, makes sense. Um, I did misstep, and you have every right to feel the way you feel. I don't tell people they have the right to feel the way they feel, because of course they do. (laughs) It's uh, um, pedantic. Makes sense that they feel that way. Yeah, really. It makes sense that you feel that way, and I feel bad about it, and I'm very sorry. And your experience here is really important, and I want us to repair if we can. Um, And... um, Two uh, the other students remarked to me that that was really helpful to them um, to see somebody model um, remorse. And also, um, well, no, that's pretty much what they said to me. Yeah, it's yeah, it's amazing. In the moment, did you apologize? Like, oh, right fuck away? yeah. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I'm like, oh, buddy, you just misstepped. Oh, man. I, it's harder for me to do that um, than you, I think. 
when I do that in class, because we have students who also have, you know, personality um, disorders as a result of relational traumas. Yeah, sure. And there will be moments where I'll do something, I'll misstep uh, inadvertently. Yeah. And then uh, realize I must have misstepped. And it, there's this – if they were an individual client, I'd, I'd immediately stop because we have the time to kind of luxuriate. Right. I, if I focus on them, it's not going to take away from anything else. Right. When I'm teaching a class, I'm like, well, I can't bog down in this because I have 15 other students right. that are paying good money for a class. Right. And, and honestly, you know, uh, if it, it's not my fault that I didn't know the person uh, didn't, you know, had this sensitivity, yeah. right? Right. Uh, because and because it's not like I. It, now, if I say something blatantly stupid or hurtful or yeah. something like that, then obviously I'd apologize. Sure, but but I, I'm just thinking about a thing that happened like, I don't know, three or four years ago. And, yeah. and I had ste- I had apparently stepped on a landmine uh-huh. with, with a student, and, and she started to cry in class. Mm-hmm. But she also indicated that she did not want to talk about it mm-hmm. at all. She's just like, I don't want to talk about it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it was a tense moment and felt really – Terrible oh, for me, course. you know, um, and I could tell the other students were like, what's going on? Sure. You know, they didn't – it wasn't intuitive as to why the person was hurt, mm-hmm. you know. And again, in individual therapy, I'd I'd say, well, okay, what's going on here? Yeah. You don't want to talk about it. What do you want to – you know, I just yeah. really kind of – Stay with – Focus yeah. and, and not just turn away and right. act like nothing happened, right. which is what I kind of did, you know what I Sort mean? of. I mean, right. It can, it can, a person could experience it that way. Yeah. You know, and it, it's just because I've been in a position as a student at times where the professor will turn to that one student. And I, as a, a fellow student, am like, I'm paying money for you to yeah. tend to that person's landmines. Yeah. Like, no, like yeah. deal with this outside of class. Right. Like right. I, I'm paying money for this. Teach me something. Right. Um, I know what it looks like when to, I don't know. It, so I'm always just, so, and I have to make that calculation like within a half a second standing in front of a group of people. Oh, you know what I mean? T- oh, yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> that is tense, man. That's a lot of balls to juggle. Heart yeah. rate's up and everybody else's heart rate is up. And yeah. Whew, and and just, inspiring. yeah, just that cringe feeling. Oh, you it's have. terrible. Sarah has another question from Facebook. Success stories of people who have moved toward healthier relationships. Uh, shit, that's on the spot. Uh, it happens. <laughs> but success story. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm drawing a blank off the top of my head. Um, well, how about yourself? Oh, okay. Yeah. How about me? I mean, you're, you're a success story who's moved towards a healthier relationship. Yes, that's true. Um, well... You know, Colleen and me, both trauma survivors, um, and the trauma, the way the trauma shows up, it's almost daily in some way, usually um, little avoidances. Um, Like what? Like we get engrossed in the television. Okay. And we're sort of parallel, but not connecting. Do you feel the distance in those moments? Yeah, and I think I'm probably more sensitive to it. I, I probably read into it more than she does. She likes it when we're together and nothing's demanded of her and it's quiet and she feels safe. Yeah. And that's her safe place. And me, I, well, I've been thinking about you a lot this week because you said to me a couple weeks ago, well, yeah, you're kind of a pursuing type or you kind of have a um, preoccupied style, which I do. And I've been watching my preoccupied style show up at work, <laughs> not since this morning, but nonetheless. And it shows up in Colleen, uh, with Colleen, in that I can be there with her and not see her as a person who's appreciating this quietness, but think, oh, shit, what aren't we talking about? Oh, shit, what aren't we talking about? Yeah. And the thing I think about, I, I do what anybody would do, is I focus on what aren't we talking about, as opposed to, oh, I'm anxious right now. Mm. I need, probably need some reassurance that everything's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I have asked for that. There's times when I ask for that, but um, it's fairly autopilot to fall into that. Yeah. Uh, and also very common. To to maybe say something like, so we're just going to sit here and watch fucking TV all night or? Yeah, I could, I could be crab. I could crab at it, which well, is probably more my bent than to be sort of like validating and assertive, which is like, hey, I'm anxious. Yeah. Can you reassure me that we're good? That's tough, though, you know, because it, it sounds 
easy to do, but it, easy. it's hard it is in hard. the moment. Yeah. We all have our pride, uh, which is a lot stronger than I think most of us would like to admit. Yeah. We also have our paranoia yeah. that like, well, is this the moment when they when they really do hate me, uh-huh. you know? Um also, you know, I imagine for someone in Colleen's position just the even if you did the most healthiest at bid for reassurance would still be a little bit of a labor that is what she's trying to avoid uh, or there's landmines in the bid that yeah. she's like oh shit here we go yeah yeah i have i haven't heard anything yet but we've been here before heart right. rate goes up right heart rate goes up can't we just sit here and watch tv without having to talk about it you know yeah. like i i just I wonder, like, yeah. you know, that that's a hard thing to navigate. Dynamic, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the success story is that uh, back in your 20s, um, you were still recovering. You're in therapy. You're, yeah. you're, you're, uh, but, you know, more reactive. Yeah. But lots of therapy, that. lots of couple therapy. Yeah. Lots of attachment, discovery. Yeah. A lot of whys in the road where you choose the healthy direction yeah. and it goes well. Yeah. A lot of humility and falling on your sword, and yeah, um, and giving up on certain hangups. Like I need to be uh, the the smart, mature, sane one. <laughs> um, and I, you know, and ironically, uh, gain so much more respect from others around you. Mm. You know, the the holding on to this notion of emotional. Uh, perfection or or um you know the steve mcqueen the you know the the strong silent type oh, right. you know the you know how the clint eastwoods that's like oh it's so cool that you know he's like that and how, yeah. you know, how, how much pride sure. these guys would have right and it's like oh if i could only achieve that and uh, in fact the opposite is true uh to actually um, listening to an interview with Terry Crews, you know, he's, Oh yeah. Terry you know, him, yeah. He's from, if you don't know him out there, he's from, uh, Brooklyn, uh, the Brooklyn, Brooklyn nine, right? nine, yeah. he was also the president in, um, idiocracy. I didn't see that. Oh, he's also the, uh, the big buff black guy from the old spice commercials. Uh-huh. Um, wait, he, wait. Look at your man. Now look at me. Not no, that no, guy. not that. No, that guy. guy's the the suave, the suave guy. The, but the the big angry ah, uh-huh. and his head explodes. And anyway, that's Terry <laughs> Crews. Uh, he was on uh, we're, you know what the fuck podcast with Mark Marin. He was also on uh, Hot Ones Challenge, the the Hot Ones Challenge that you did on the podcast. Oh right. Uh, during our uh, was that our anniversary? No. Yeah. Was that our anniversary? Eleventh. No. Thousandth episode. That's what it Thousandth was. episode. Yeah. yeah, and Terry Crews. He was. A, he's a NFL football player. He played. You know, in the NFL linebacker like me. By the way, which wow. I respect quite a bit. And you know, buff, tough guy. You know, often plays roles where you know he's a tough guy. He was a bouncer. He was uh, for like Ice Cube for a while. <laughs> um, you know, he's like the epitome of masculinity. Uh-huh. And he uh, talks about, it, you know, how he was sexually harassed during the Me Too movement by an agent at his um, agency in, at a big of a party. Like they just grabbed his this guy just grabbed his junk and and how humiliated he felt, you know, oh. and, and, and how men. So not only how men can be sexually harassed, which yeah. is obvious, right. but how a giant buff black guy who could crush your skull um, and has, uh, you know, a persona of masculinity and Mm -hmm. and power uh, can instantly be made to feel small and Mm -hmm. insignificant. So, Bob, I wasn't recording the last 20 minutes of our conversation. (laughs) Pearls of wisdom. (laughs) Uh, Let's take a break and when we get back, uh, I don't know, let's reset or something. All right. So, 
So yeah, if so, listeners, if you're listening to the bit just before that, uh, basically what's happening? Long story short, I don't have my usual backup recording setup uh, available, and so I periodically will stop the recording just to make sure I'm capturing everything. And so I stopped the recording. I thought I restarted it. I did not restart it. Uh, Bob and I had a 20 minute conversation about Buddha. I teared up. Bob teared up. We talked more about Terry Crews. Um, uh, so uh, that'll just be lost to the ether. Oh, they missed it. Pearls of wisdom. <laughs> but to summarize what I was and what you were saying was that I was talking about Terry Crews and about how he is able to be vulnerable yeah. and that to shed his pride of masculinity, yeah. to be the strong, right. silent type like mm. Clint Eastwood and and Steve McQueen, if you're old enough to remember him from Bullet, for example, and The Great Escape, um, uh, is a unhealthy way to live as a man. And Terry Crews, the the manliest of all men, exhibits uh, the manliness manliness of all men's uh, way of emoting and admitting his own mm-hmm. vulnerability. And he talks about his wife. I don't know if I got that on the recording, he but. Did. Uh, he talks about how he needs to be vulnerable to his wife and, yeah. and how he needs to uh, uh, know his own emotions and this kind yeah. of thing. And so I highly recommend listening to the uh, what WTF uh, interview with Terry Crews and Mark Maron. Um, and then we were talking about safety and, and I was talking about how, for me, uh, achieve, you know, how do we achieve safety? In, in a or you brought that up or yeah. something something and um, you know it's how do we achieve safety in relationships right. and, and it's a frequent thing and and the thing that I was saying was that um, for me and my wife occasionally what I will want is um, reassurance yeah. that she's thinking about me that she cares that I'm a priority that she has warm feelings that it's that it's not manufactured that it's real it's yeah. it's it's from the heart and that uh and so the question that i'll say to her will be um so do you still love me right. you know, or or i'll say how much do you love me mm-hmm. you know just out of the blue uh-huh. <laughs> cuz i'll have an upwelling of whatever some kind of need for reassurance in that yeah. way which is normal and she responds well to that um but uh Meaning she recognizes that this question, uh, while playful, also has something deep and meaningful behind it. Right. And she responds to you. Right. And the reason why she knows partially is because early in our relationship, I explained that to her. (laughs) I said, uh, so when I ask you that question, it's actually kind of deeper than that. It's it's actually, I'm probably having some kind of insecure moment that I really need you to uh, step up to the plate with uh, if you can, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because uh, it'll really put me in a better mood. Um, So like a mature conversation about feelings and reassurance. Yeah. Nice. And gushy stuff. Gushy stuff. And then we were talking about how uh, ultimately, for me anyway, Mm. the... The acceptance, you know, safety also is established in part with the acceptance that at the end of the day, we're still basically alone, that our deeper fantasies of closeness and security and safety will never really be achieved uh, in the way that we had it when we hopefully we got it Mm -hmm. from our parents, particularly our mothers when we were, you know, six, nine, 12 months old. We're breastfeeding, we're in their arms, we're looking into their eyes. Our mothers are totally attuned. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to exclude uh, males from this as well. Obviously, you know, gay couples can, can have this as well. Whoever or, or is that. Dads. Yeah. But, you know, the the act of breastfeeding is oh. particular or the act of feeding. I'll just say that yeah. just just that, you know, that that if you've ever had a young child, you know what it is. You're you're holding the child skin to skin mm-hmm. uh you're feeding the child especially if you're breastfeeding there's there's a eye contact mm-hmm. you 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 know every single emotion that this little creature has the creature looks up to the caregiver there's no boundary between caregiver and child they're one unit and the child feels that and the child feels safe and warm and taken care of and satiated and known and seen and safe. And mom has a release of oxytocin. 
Yeah, and, and child so, too. Yeah. So bonding hormone. Yeah, right. in a way that uh, is powerful. Yeah, visceral. Yeah, but to the child, it's beyond anything we could possibly imagine as an adult, and yet we all are trying to return there. I think on some level. Yeah. And yet we will never return there. Not like that. But you said something important. You said, well, maybe we have moments when we're making love or we're at a wedding and it's really powerful and meaningful and we have moments of connection. Yeah. Right. And, and then we ended up talking about, yeah, we're all alone and and how we kind of have to live with that. And we ended up talking about the Buddha. The first noble truth is all life is dissatisfying. Um, and how that gets translated into English is all life is suffering, but that's not really accurate. Sanskrit, all life is dissatisfying. And how we optimally can be okay with not being okay. Yeah. And I forget when you and I started to tear up, but it was somewhere in there somewhere. somewhere. In there. <laughs> so anyway, mm-hmm. uh, I think that was a good you know, summary. Yeah, it's a good enough facsimile of our uh, recreation of our previous conversation that went on for a while. All right. Another uh, question from Top Fan Jenna. Uh, she says, I'll listen to you all day, Bob. <laughs> Um, Tell Colleen. <laughs> I, <laughs> I would love to hear about formative experiences for you or other life-changing moments in your life that have made you who you are. Oh, well. Uh, well, contextual. Um, my friendship with you. And I've said this on the podcast before. Wow. One of the reasons that you're such a meaningful and important person to me and that I really love you is... Um, I am so self-conscious and so scared all the time and filled with shame. And I watch you and look, I I know that this isn't the whole of you, right? But there is a part of you that does not apologize for how you feel, for what you want, for what you do. And me, I like, there's a part of me that always wants to apologize. And one of the best things I've gotten from you, I have two friends that are like this, you and then my other friend, Keith, um, is just having a model of it's okay to be you. Mm. So so that's for, and I remember early in our relationship, yeah. you would tell me something like uh-huh. that. Yeah. And it was so bizarre to me because when we met you, you've always been older, but the age difference was more distinct when we were in our 20s. Oh, yeah, right. And I looked up to you. Oh, it, You were smarter than I was. Mm. You were more a better therapist than I was. You were... Um, I don't know, in a lot of ways, more social and dynamic. And, you know, I I sort of glommed on to you and your friends, you know. Oh, yeah, right. Oh, that was so fun. Keith yeah. being one of them. Keith, right? Yeah, Keith, good guy. Um, and uh, so when you would say that to me, yeah. you'd be like, you know, I just really, mm-hmm. you know, respect that you just you just have a, um, a way mm-hmm. that you don't, you know, the the shadow to this is narcissism, which is to be um, too into yourself. Oh, we got to work that in. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the positive side, yeah. the light side, is is a uh, assuredness or yeah. a non-apologeticness. Right. You know, and and quite different from what I've discovered in you as we've done the schema therapy episodes of a of a deep part of yourself that you you're quite uh, just baseline ashamed of who you are yeah. like like you have this schema that's really quite common yeah. uh, for, for people where you believe that there's something deeply just flawed about you yeah. and if people really got to know you they wouldn't really like you yeah which is heartbreaking and you know oh. it, it, but i remember you telling me that in the past and thinking huh well okay uh i can do that for bob you know i can i can I can model that, you know. <laughs> you were just going to be you anyways, I think. <laughs> uh, did I it think, put pressure on you? No, no, no. But I think at times I did pour it on a little bit. You no know shit. I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. I think. I mean, it sounds familiar to me. Yeah, if a little is good, a lot is more. And, you know, there were times when you and I were kind of in the foxhole together, if you will. Oh, yeah. And so I kind of knew that if I stepped up uh-huh. you would step up with I, me we did many times yeah <laughs> Good. those are fun days <laughs> hey do you remember our first date first date yeah we were it was after class it was probably first quarter maybe second quarter and um we were leaving class and laura and annette were going to come out with us and we were going to go to the sit and spin and they both bagged oh. and it was just you and me and i'm like oh shit it's just you and me <laughs> like 
is this going to be fun? You know, do do we, can I relate to you? Are you going to be able to relate to me? You know, and we ended up, the sit and spin, remember that place? Yeah. Yeah. We ended up having a really nice evening. It was really Uh fun. Had a couple of beers and chatted. Wow. After, after class. Wow. For those who don't know, sit and spin was kind of a main sort of venue in Seattle, Belltown, back when Belltown was grungy. Yeah. And sit and spin was a laundromat Mm -hmm. slash bar. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, now it's a it's like a donut coffee place I think, mm. um, and they actually would have bands in the back too. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, you, didn't you play there? No, no. Oh, um, we went there for a show. Yeah, it was actually Chris Glover's cousin's band Reef. Uh, they're from England and they were touring. And um, wow, and, uh, I've talked about this in the podcast before where. I talked with the lead singer uh, because he was living my life. You know, it's like, oh my God, you, you have a hit song that's, you know, going global, you're touring, uh, you know, what, what's your contract like? What does your future look like? And he said, um, well, I'm making no money from the album because the, all the proceeds goes toward the label, the first album. Two, um, I'm making something like $35,000 a year, which I was like, that sucks. Three, I'm touring all the time, which is kind of a pain in the ass. And four, if I don't have another hit song, which they didn't, by the way, mm-hmm. then this was just a flash in the pan uh, moment that kind of distracted me maybe from my career options. And I remember just being like, what the fuck? I mean, this guy uh-huh. had a, it was, it was a wrote on regular rotation on MTV, his, uh-huh. the, his video. And I thought, okay, I guess that, because there was no way I was even going to achieve that. But I thought, you know, if I got, five percent in that direction Uh maybe you know it'd be something great and so so that's when i switched to just treating music as a hobby Uh uh, important learning yeah which has really saved maybe my love for it but Mm. but anyway yeah our first date you know i i'm sorry to say i don't remember that oh yeah i don't i only remember going to sit and spin only that one time when we went to that show yeah um but i do remember going out with you and annette and and laura often yeah um, they were fun. And I remember uh, us being like, you know, school friends that would maybe have a beer after yeah. class. But then it wasn't until we were about to graduate or something that we're when we became fast friends. I don't remember when that happened. It was right. I finished school in June, but we we were friends then. Yeah. And I remember uh, that winter. No, no, that was the next one. So this is 1997, if people are keeping track. Yeah. Well, at some point along the way, you started coming to play poker with uh, Michael and Beth and the whole gang. Yeah. And the Todd. I think it was something around there in in 97. Todd wasn't a part of the group at first. No, he wasn't. He he joined later. Yeah. It was was Mike, Beth, Keith, Keith's spouse. Yeah. And the Jaworski's occasionally occasionally not very often yeah yeah, yeah it was mainly you mike beth keith and keith's sitting spouse. in that apartment at michael and beth's in yeah. the district yeah and we play <laughs> poker and that so that's the, the oh the, and bish yeah right and bish yeah. yeah and the uh wonderful thing about this group that i loved was that i grew up playing poker with my dad my right. dad and his his japanese american friends um once a month would play poker until you know the early morning and they played you know five card stud you know they they played all the games and uh, my dad would sit us down and we would play as well Um, we i have very warm memories but when you're playing with a real card player you got to play cards you got to do your responsibilities you got to bet when your bet is up you Mm got to uh, ask for the right cards. You, you can't play around. Yeah, you know, right. you, you can't be distracted. You uh-huh. can't have side conversations. Really, uh-huh. you can't get up and watch TV. You yeah. got to stay focused at the game. Yeah. Whenever I would try to wrangle my friends, similar to me trying to wrangle my friends to play Dungeons and Dragons, oh, yeah. it never went the way that I was hoping it would go. <laughs> because my friends they get distracted, and I was constantly like, "It's your bet." <laughs> okay, it's your bet. No, no, no. You can't do that. It's it's five to you. You can't raise. No, you can't. We're playing five card draw. You know, like it's just a constant, you know, I have to be like a hawk. Den mother. On, you know, six people's playing. Yeah. And I have to watch everything they do because they will, one, they will screw it up. And two, they won't do it because they'll be, they'll be distracted. Right. I played with you guys. Yeah. And every one of you guys was a hardcore card player. Yeah. Like me. Yeah. 
And I was in heaven. Yeah. I never had to tell anyone what to do. Occasionally, someone would be distracted, and the whole table would descend on that person <laughs> and just be <laughs> like, Keith, what the fuck? <laughs> Yo, I'm sorry. You know, and, and that would be the last time it would happen. And I was like, oh, my God. And by the way, we would play yeah. all night long, lose. The, the biggest loser back then would lose like five bucks. Five bucks. And they would be devastated. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was when I learned that the money was inconsequential. It, the money was um, an, uh, just well, a marker for how well you did. Kind of, but, you know, five bucks was kind of a oh, thing back then. Yeah, I was on student loans. Yeah. I had no money, yeah. right? Yeah, it, well, that was not a joke, you know. No. Five bucks was a thing. Anyway, and, uh, you know, all those guys became all my best friends. Yeah, yeah. And Great guys. Yeah, they were just fantastic uh, people. Yeah. Uh, Cliff, too, right? Oh, yeah, Cliff, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just from 97 to 2000 or something, it's like we probably spent two or three days a week together. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I used um, to live at your house. Yeah. Uh, half, uh, two, three days a week. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah, so it was good times. Anyway, uh, well, but give us another formative moment for Jenna, like from before, you know, maybe when you were a kid or something. You know, informative could mean anything, right? Life-changing moment. Yeah. I suck at these kinds of things. It takes me a sec to kind of... um, What about, like, the first time you got dumped or the first time you fell in love? Oh, yeah, Kathy Ricky. Yeah, Kathy Ricky. Uh, I met her when I was in ninth grade. We were both in the band together. We played clarinet and we were in the marching band together and she was next to me and she's the first girl that ever hugged me, right? And from then on, I was sort of smitten, right? She's How still, old were you? What grade? I was in ninth grade. She was in 10th. And I pined for her because she wasn't interested in me other than we were good friends. And we were good friends. We, we had the same circle of folks. And Are you friends with her on Facebook? No, we, this was a little couple of days before Facebook. <laughs> and um, uh, at the winter concert when I was a junior, she, <laughs> she was sitting next to me in the band, right? We we're going to do our show. And she had a little booger right on the end of her nose. And I thought it was so cute. <laughs> you know, normally, ugh, but I was just like, oh, yeah, that's kind of cute. Wow. Yeah. That that's, is true love, that's man. That's love, man. I mean, if if you're, if you think bugs are cute. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that that's, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. So Formative, yeah. So how was it formative to you? Like, was it like, oh, this is what this feels like? Or Well, yeah, actually, it was a really depressing time because, you know, you pine for somebody who's not interested in you and she ends up dating your friend. And it's like, oh, God. She dated so your friend? Crunching. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because uh, we were all in the same group, right? So she dated Rob. Did she know you liked her? Oh, yeah. Oh. yeah. Oh, yeah. I went through hell over this. And really in a disorganized way, you know, it's like... Um, depressed and longing and sad and a little hangdog and pursuing. Hangdog? What's hangdog? Um, you know, like... Um, Third wheel? What was me? Oh. Yeah. Um, and... Um, was hangdog, is that a Pennsylvania thing? I don't know. Yeah. Not, it. Apparently it's not a Seattle thing. Yeah. So, you know, she was never interested in me. And then something happened and God, I don't know what it was, but I just snapped out of it. Um, when was it? The booger? No, it wasn't then. Was it maybe maybe that was when I was a sophomore. The booger was when I was a sophomore. And when I was a junior in August of my junior year, you go to band camp. Two two weeks of marching band in the fucking hot, humid Pennsylvania sun is miserable. Um uh but every day from eight to five uh for two weeks. And I just snapped out of it. It just stopped. And I, I love her. She's great, you know. We're still buddies, we're still good friends, but it just stopped. Wow. So I don't even know why. But was this like a daily thing for you? Like, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I used to look at her school photo because, you know, that back in those days, you know, you get your, your portrait taken, your school photo portrait, and then you get the little minis and people pass them around. They write something on the back, you know. So I had hers. I used to just stare at it. Were there any other girls that you were like, okay, uh-uh. no, just her? Just her. My God, you were ducky and pretty. I was, I was fucking imprinted on her. You were ducky and pretty and pink. I was. I was ducky. Yeah. Yeah. And your friend was McCarthy, who gets the girl. That's right. That's right. Blaine. Blaine. Yeah. That's, not a, that's not a name. It's an appliance. Yeah. That's a line from the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Um, 
Golly, I mean, I I can you know I can feel that uh, as you describe. I mean, just uh, years of, of like two years, just being in love Ugh. with someone, and you just look at their picture, and their boogers even seem cute. I yeah, and can't can't get them and she knew that you well now that we look back now that yeah. you've you know done sure. all your work sure okay right uh what was going on then like because oh, yeah. if i were talking if you right. were my client and you right. were 16 right i'd be like i get it you're in love let's value that sure and on the one hand. are you shooting yourself in the foot by Kinda. focusing on, like plus you're a good looking kid mm. you're funny mm. you're nice Plenty of other girls are would love you, you know. Uh, one, two. What are you doing that's making it hard for uh, what was it, Ricky, Kathy, Kathy, Ricky to like you back? Like, is it, was was your buddy like uh, approaching it differently, person? You know, from a different attachment angle. You know, well, was your disorganized super withdrawn? <laughs> was it, what he was super withdrawn. Like, Interesting. Yeah. So you know, were you doing anything? I don't want to blame the victim. No, not at but, all. But looking back, were you doing anything as a disorder? And this is actually pertinent to a lot of listeners, yeah. I'm guessing, because there's a lot of lonely people out there oh, yeah. who have attachment injuries right? and will be in situations like that where they're just like, you know, what's wrong with me? How come? And looking back, and maybe you've never had a chance to think about yeah, it. This is interesting. Was there something about your disorganized attachment style internally and behaviorally that led not only to... Uh, Kathy not uh, being interested in you because maybe there's a part where she was kind of interested in you but she was turned off by something you were doing and or your disorganized attachment made it uh, difficult for you to kind of adjust because most people have crushes that go unrequited Sure, uh, but for years uh, you know that's and suffering in that Uh, way uh, that was a theme for me back then yeah chasing uh, uh, I mean you could say on the surface chasing women that were unavailable yeah but I did find myself attracted to women who were not available Um, so okay yeah I do think I probably did a lot of things that would turn her off Um, insecurity is not a turn on like do you think you exhibited that oh hell yeah okay yeah um, oh you wouldn't like me I'm just yeah yeah moody broody uh, at times desperate um, like angry like how come you don't like me no no I I don't recall ever getting angry with her, but I do recall getting like that sort of desperate, sad, clingy thing. Like that, like Ducky. Like Ducky. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's probably just a universal turnoff. Right. Period. Um, so, yeah, I think that. And then in terms of me fixating. Whereas your friend was like all Steve McQueen. I, interesting, because, you know, I, I remember him and he was so withdrawn. Like he was silent when I was around. Just the two of us. He, yeah. The, the guy never talked. Yeah. I didn't know what the appeal was. Clint Eastwood. Yeah, but not. A, this is not like a tough guy. This is just a mild-mannered drummer in the band. Yeah. Right? But emotionally, he's a Clint Eastwood. I guess so, yeah. 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 Stoic, I guess you could see him that way. I never... Anyways. Um, uh, nice guy. Um, I think I got stuck. Let's see. What's What would stick me? Uh, shame has got to be a piece of it. And perhaps a self-concept of not worthy. That's I'm spitballing here. I don't know. A uh, self-concept of not truly worthy. Or maybe it's safe to love something that doesn't love you back. Yeah. So, something, excuse me. Someone that doesn't love you back. It's sort of safe. You know, there's no risk involved. Right. I see all that. Yeah. I, I can also absolutely see being you saying you being broody and being, you know, like uh, giving off a vibe of oh, yeah. uh, of, of desperation. Oh, yeah. And uh, even if it was like three times over the span of a year or something oh, yeah, like that, right. you know, it, was, it wasn't like all the time. It was just like brief moments where maybe you had a couple beers or oh. or she, uh, you know, and her, you and her were alone and, and you were just like, I just got to tell her. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. yeah I could just imagine and, and her going like. Uh, you know, just getting a vibe yeah. of just like, whoa, whoa, like there's a lot of energy there. Yeah. And, you know, I might have liked him otherwise or something like that. Maybe. So so that's a formative moment for you. Yeah. What What do you mean? How did it form your personality? Well, um, let's see. I liked several people after her who were unavailable. Mm. So it kind of provided a template for mm-hmm. having at least some closeness because you were good friends with her. Yeah, we were good so, friends. So you did get that. Yeah. That attention. Yeah. 
Uh, and so it locked in. I have, I have a, I've seen that a lot. It's hard to measure, but I've seen a lot where our first true kind of the closest we get to like that soul connection in teenage years uh, or early twenties becomes often it imprints on us um, a lot of elements that uh, are really hard to disassociate from, from our uh, needs uh, later on. Yeah. So that's what happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of what happened was, uh, well, Sort of, there were three women after that who, um, over the next 12, 14 years that I was in love with, who were unavailable either because um, they were dating somebody else or they just weren't interested in me or both. And oh, one in particular, she and I, we worked at this runaway shelter together right when we finished college. We both got hired at the same time. And um, we, I think we had a mutual attraction for one another, but then after a while she was like not into me and probably for these, these reasons. And this right before I moved to Seattle, about a week before I moved to Seattle, I went out with her. It was our last time hanging out and saying goodbye. And I was hugging her goodbye. And she said to me, I wonder if I'm going to regret not dating you. And I said to her, well, God, I hope so. <laughs> uh, and, it, and she got married. Um, um, so anyways, and the women that um, were in By the way, if she, she's probably listening right now, uh-huh. and I'm guessing she does regret it because her husband isn't as emotionally mature as you are. I think they divorced. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I, I, have, I talked to her once about 10 years ago, and I occasionally see her on those rare occasions I look at Facebook. Anyways, um, the women that were interested in me, I was afraid of. Mm. I had lots of self-doubt. The first person I was ever involved with... With, with any length of time, it lasted 18 months. Nine of it was long distance. And I broke up with her five times over over the 18 months. Be, like, sh- oh, we can't do this. And then I'd find myself back. Well, we can't do this. And well, do- break that down. Like, what, what, was, what did that feel like? So you're getting consistent love and attention uh-huh. uh, that isn't unrequited uh-uh. and, and isn't uh, – you're not grasping for it. It's just, it's uh-uh. just freely She's given. She's just offering – She's into you. Yeah. And how does that, you know, that's the stimulus. How does that get processed in your body and come out with you breaking up with her? I don't know, except I would feel alternating between anxiety and irritation. Irritation with her. And I didn't like the feeling of irritation. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, she's not right for me or we're not a good, you know, whatever. And I'd just be like, no, we didn't do this anywhere, you know. And I was probably, in a way, torturing her, but, um, you know, to detangle and all that. But... Uh, I think that as we got close, I got scared and I did what my dad used to do, which is get cranky and then, um, pokey, thorny, uh-huh. you know, like irritable yeah, and not, not nice. And I don't like feeling that way yeah. and I don't like acting that way. And so I would just push away and then there'd be enough distance and I'd feel like, oh, okay, things are okay. And then I'd be drawn in again because I did love her. Right. She was she was lovely and she was kind to me and she was a lot of really great things about her and she really liked me and it was good. And then we'd connect and I could tolerate that for so long and then have a crisis and pull away. And we did that five times. Uh, and then the sixth time we broke up was the one she initiated and that's the one that stuck. Hmm. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I can imagine her doing things to contribute to that. Yeah, she sure. could be poking at you in certain ways or being enmeshed and, and, you know, not very respectful of your boundaries in certain ways or was exhibiting some of that desperation that you, you know, were doing to other people and they were, you know. So I could see her being partial. But, you know, I could also see Mm. this being, as you're framing it, I think part of the disorganized attachment as we're labeling it. But essentially the... Uh, as one gets close, uh, even though that's often what we're searching for, there's a lot of associations with that that are quite scary. Um, Engulfment, control, uh, criticism, vulnerability, and lack of of, uh, space for yourself. And uh, I could imagine all that can, can be quite aggravating. Yeah, it sucked. Yeah. I mean, uh, that experience sucked. I remember um, 
these weird thought distortions I would have about her and they were all push away, push away. And that was right. The first time I was ever in therapy was right around that time. And my therapist said, it sounds like this is the way you're perceiving her as a way to distance yourself from her. First time I ever actually thought about myself psychologically. Um, and it actually was reassuring to think that that were what I was doing. Um, it made it easier to tolerate closeness, at least for a while. So, and it makes me think that, you know, since Colleen is more of the let's just Netflix and chill and that's my safe space, mm. that that doesn't risk the pursuing engulfment annoyance that you felt with that previous person. That's a great statement. That yeah. Colleen actually, uh, in a way you benefit from her being a little distant mm -hmm. uh, because it allows you to pursue as long as it's requited pursuance uh, enough of the time. Yeah, right. Uh, allowed pursuance, mm -hmm. um, received pursuance. Yeah. And if she were to truly turn around, you might be like, hey, what the fuck? You know? <laughs> I think I still have that vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we all do. Well, okay. Uh, it's, you're just going to have more of it because of the <laughs> amount of uh, invasion that you experienced growing mm. up and the risks of being close to people mm. growing up were so much more greater than average, right? Yeah. Well, um, is that aggrandizing or is that just true? What do you mean aggrandizing? You know... Um, I think there's a, a level anyone of, who deeply thinks there's something flawed with them at their core when there's nothing flawed with them at all, really. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's aggrandizing anything. Thank you. That's reassuring. I mean, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Don't shame yourself for your shame. <laughs> <laughs> I'll shame you for shaming yourself for your shame. <laughs> All right, well, let's wrap that up. We only got to halfway through page one of page, of 10 pages. Hey! I thought we might get to more, but we did I think did it. it's farther than we usually get. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, pa patrons, Patrick, Sarah, and Jenna, for asking interesting questions. Um, I know a lot of you asked other questions that we'll try to get to in another episode. Yeah. And please take care of yourself and do not shame. I will shame all of you out there for shaming your shame. Um, and please take care of yourself because <laughs> you deserve it. <laughs> <laughs>